Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is November the 3rd, 2023, a Friday, uh, October, and actually even September were all well months for the show. Uh, actually, even back in August, we did a show with DJ Taylor, who's one of George Orwell's most authoritative uh, biographers. He has a new book out, Orwell, The New Life. It's a rather conventional, although very impressive, and erudite biography, male biography of one of the iconic male writers and journalists of the 20th century. Um, but uh, late, later uh, in August, we had a show with Anna Funder. Many of you will be familiar with her classic book, Stasiland. She has a new book out on Orwell, uh, or actually an invisible Orwell, Mrs. Orwell. A book is called Wifedom, Mrs. Orwell's Invisible Life, about Orwell's literally, I think, invisible life, uh, uh, Eileen O'Shaughnessy, a remarkable woman, or a remarkable woman as she emerges from um, Funder's book. And then this month, we had, or last month in October, we had a show with uh, Sandra Newman, who was also, in a sense, rewritten, or quite literally, actually, rewritten Orwell. Um, she came on the show talking about her alternative view of 1984, uh, she's rewritten 1984, uh, replacing Winston Smith as the central character with Julia, who was uh, a marginal character at most uh, in the Orwell version of 1984. Uh, and I'm thrilled that uh, Beth Ann Patrick, who is a regular guest, in fact, a weekly guest on, on Keen On, had a, an intriguing take on... Um, on Newman's book, uh, and I'm quoting from the title in the Los Angeles Times, uh, a feminist take on Orwell's 1984 reads like the original, only better. And uh, I got Beth Ann now, as always, from uh, Washington, D.C. Beth Ann, only better. Does, uh, does uh, Sandra Newman really out Orwell Orwell? I'm not sure she out Orwell's Orwell, but she definitely out humans Orwell. She actually puts together a Julia Worthing, a Julia, um, Winston's Julia, who is so understandable, who has a backstory, who has motivations, who has conflicts, who has hypocrisies, and yet somehow this Julia is all of a piece with Orwell's Julia. And it's understandable why she and Winston would have gotten together, why the things happen the way they happen. And I really do stand um, behind my words on this. Although I will tell you, Andrew, I received a long and angry message on Facebook from a gentleman who said that I was completely wrong. And not only was I completely wrong, one, two, three, four, five, but how dare I criticize a male writer like Orwell when I, as a female, am actually working on a keyboard that was invented by a man. I love that. 
Yeah, I like that one too. That's a good one. Uh, I thought you were going to say that you got a message from George Orwell on Facebook, <laughs> which is uh, would would have been quite an achievement. Uh, let, let me quote your your summary. Um, uh, new, uh, so it wasn't just the headline writers at the LA Times. Uh, Newman hasn't proved herself a worthy successor to Orwell. She outclassed him both in knowledge of human nature and in character development. Julia should be the new required text on those high school curricula, a stunning look into what happens when a person of strength versus, faces the worst in humanity, as well as a perfect specimen of derivative art that in standing on another's shoulders can reach a higher plane. This idea that she outclasses him both in knowledge of human nature and in character development, is that fair, um, Bethan, in the sense that I'm not sure Orwell was really writing a book either uh, about his knowledge of human nature or of character development, or maybe I'm wrong. Well, first of all, I will say that I think in character development, there is no question that she's done much deeper work. Now, Orwell may not have wanted to do that. That may not have been his purpose. You know, we all know about Animal Farm as an allegory. I was just talking to some of my students the other day about what an allegory is and what it accomplishes and what it's not supposed to accomplish. But I do think in 1984, he wasn't necessarily working on allegorical level. He was working with characters who were supposed to be real humans. And he had the option to make them more complicated. Now, if Orwell, and I can't know this completely without um, either being DJ Taylor or being a professor of literature who has studied Orwell in depth, I can't know if that was something that he didn't want to do something that he felt was his weakness, et cetera, et cetera. However, after reading Julia, I thought this is truly a more evolved um, piece of literature. And this is truly a piece of literature that can show those high school students I mentioned, because earlier in the review, I talk about the fact that everyone reads 1984 during high school. I think it's an important, important text, Sandra Newman's book, that is, um, to show people that 1984, it's like a slice. It's just a, a cross-section of what happens in Winston and Julia's lives. Julia is about Julia's life, not in its entirety quite, but it has a great deal more about why she is who she is and why she does what she does. And I would think if I were going to teach them, if I were teaching high school instead of college, then I might want to say, let's read these together. It's definitely worth reading together. Yes. Um, most people, I, I hope, watching and, and viewing this, listening, will have read 1984, but perhaps not everyone. How would you describe Winston Smith in my conversation with Sandra Newman? We talked about Smith in an autobiographical sense. Orwell, when he wrote 1984, he knew he was dying. Yes. He retired, if that's the right word, to mm -hmm. uh, uh, a very obscure Scottish island, Jura, to write the book. He was, he was um, fighting time. 
in terms of finishing this book before he died. How would you describe Smith, Winston Smith? What kind of man was he? And do you think that there was an autobiographical element? Was really Winston Smith, George Orwell? I don't know if they're completely congruent, but I do think there are some elements of Winston Smith in George, uh, of George Orwell in Winston Smith. And one of the things that I would say about that is Winston Smith is a very frightened man. Winston Smith is a man who he's alive, but he's not living. And of course, what Orwell wanted us all to see is that living in a totalitarian fascist state does not allow you to experience life in its full facets and in, in all of its varieties. Um, and I think that comes from Orwell because he had, as you say, Andrew, become so ill with tuberculosis tuberculosis and was not able to participate fully in life any longer. I know we're going to talk about wifedom, but I want to interject something that does come at the end of wifedom as well as other pieces. Orwell was married for the final time on his deathbed. Um, and he actually, and this is something that really touched me, he didn't want to be married, you know, in pajamas. And so he asked someone to go out and get him. I guess it turned out to be sort of a red corduroy jacket, something very kind of dandyish. And uh, he was very pleased to be able to be well, well clad, you know, for this wedding ceremony in the hospital. And many people, the people who were there, there weren't many people there were really sad, but it sounds as if he were not. It sounds as if this was his last last gasp of truly living, you know, saying, I can still make a vow. And I thought that was extremely interesting in terms of talking about Eileen Shaughnessy Blair, um, George Orwell slash Eric Blair's wife, um, previous wife who had died um, in 1945. We're speaking with Beth Ann Patrick, an old friend of the show, the book critic of the Los Angeles Times, a bit of an Orwell expert herself. And we're talking George Orwell. Uh, Beth Ann, you, you bring up the, the, the second marriage. It seems from, from what I've read that he, he, he remarried to make sure that his manuscripts would be safe. He wasn't, he was much less concerned about the adopted child that he and Eileen, uh, the, the child that he and I, Eileen adopted, but he cared about the future of his manuscripts. Is in, in comparing Orwell and, and Smith, Smith, of course, is concerned with freedom, Orwell with his books. Are they missing some element of humanity here when you talk about uh, Newman out-humaning Orwell? Was there something missing with him, do you think? I, I do think there was something missing with him all the way through. And that is something I think Anna Funder is really clear on, that he was not quite all there as 
a man or a husband. He was all there when it came to being um, a writer, a person of the literary life. And he was also all there when it came to his own personal experiences in Burma, in Paris, in other places, in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. He was able to exist when he was alone, or I shouldn't say alone, when he was completely focused on something that was all about him. But he had a real problem with relating to other people. And let Here's, here's one of the things that is most horrifying. And Thunder talks about it very briefly early on in Wifedom and then explains the rest of it later in the book. He had a very close female friend when he was young before he went, well, he didn't go to university, but before he went to um, Burma. And I'm not, Jacintha Brooks, I believe is her full name. And they had been very close but then the friendship completely splintered. And all you know at first in Funder's book is that something happened between them. Then you find out later, and I've read this in more than one place now, that Jacintha Brooks came home from an afternoon with Orwell, with Eric Blair, as he might have been known then, with a torn skirt, mud all over the place, crying. Um, and she wrote to him and said, you know, you shouldn't have tried to force yourself to make love to me. I, you know, I didn't want this. And so some people are very um, sure to use the word, you know, rape or attempted rape here. I don't know enough about Orwell, despite your kind words, to say what happened. And I really do want to learn more. But it seems pretty clear that he thought, oh, here's someone I'm close to. I can do whatever I want to that person. That Yeah, you're definitely going to get a, a Facebook message from George Orwell now. Yeah, you, I am. Having <laughs> made those accusations. So, uh, I mean, this this stuff is is highly speculative, yes. uh, obviously. And, and the Funder book is really good. I think of the yes. three books, the Funder one is my favorite. Uh, it's the one I read from cover to cover mm -hmm. um it, it, and i'm not sure i don't want to put words into anna funder's mouth but she seems to be suggesting in the book maybe maybe you'll correct me if i'm wrong that there's something and again i, I have to be careful here typically male about george orwell is that fair you know one of the things i really like and I believe this is towards the end of Wifedom, where Funder says, you know, maybe it's not typically male. Maybe it was actually George Orwell. Maybe George Orwell was not able to connect. Maybe he was kind of cruel and aloof and unable to be a full partner in a marriage. To put it mildly, I mean, she she yeah. argues that he was he was sort of he'd had too. I think she suggests he had too much sex in his life. He probably would say <laughs> right, and he simply right. wasn't really that interested in what certainly Eileen wanted from marriage, which was Absolutely. love and sex and affection. Absolutely, but you know, here's the thing: what um, Thunder is saying is we have the patriarchy. The patriarchy 
it, it doesn't work for everyone. Let's put that over here for a second and look at George Orwell, the person. And did the patriarchy make him into a bad husband? It might have set things up so that he could be a bad husband and not be culturally ashamed of it. But it didn't necessarily make him ungenerous and cruel and uh, withholding. Those are things that come from someone's own personality. And so I think Funder is very fair all in all. And the book, I, I think it's very important for us to make clear, Andrew, that wifedom is a combination of looking carefully at six letters that Eileen Shaughnessy wrote to her best friend from university, Nora. And then it's bits and pieces of both Orwell, uh, both Orwell and Shaughnessy's um, histories. And then it's also about Anna Funder's life as a 21st century wife and mother living under a patriarchal system that chafes, you know, many times. And I mean, we could go on and on. I mean, I understand a lot of Anna Funder and I are basically contemporaries. And I know what she means when she talks about these endless rounds of, you know, uh, bringing pets to the vet and children to the doctor and picking up dinner party ingredients and all of these things. Those are not things that are necessarily about George Orwell. What is about George Orwell is how he treated Eileen, how he treated Eileen vis-a-vis -vis his work. And in this case, because we're talking about Julia by Sandra Newman, how he wrote the character of Julia in 1984. That's what I think is, you know, is really vital about wifedom here. Mm, and Julia was just a convenience and excuse to embellish Winston Smith and the, the parable in the book, just as perhaps yes. Eileen was uh, an excuse to embellish the legend of George Orwell or Eric Blair, whoever you yes. want to describe him as. We are speaking with the great Orwellian. No, she's not really an Orwellian, because <laughs> that's an insult, Beth Ann. But you're, <laughs> you're certainly someone with a keen interest in George Orwell, as we all have. I mean, he certainly was a great writer, yes. for better or worse. I'm not sure if he was quite a great man. He certainly wasn't a great husband. Um, and I want to remind everyone that this show is brought to you by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. Excellent publication. I'm sure they'll have some stuff on Orwell. They cover everything and every everyone else who's important. I'm going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then I want to come back and talk with Beth Ann Moore about Orwell, his wife, 1984, and all these other interesting controversial issues. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with Bethan Petrick, the book critic of the LA Times, and we're talking Orwell today. Uh, Bethan, you know better than most that literature is always seems to be truer than 
nonfiction or the world yes. itself. And the, the, the fiction writers always get there first, even in a fictional form. I was astonished. Uh, you mentioned before the break that the uh, the Thunder book is, is based uh, on uh, some of uh, Eileen O'Shaughnessy's letters and one or two diary entries that Orwell made. And, and, and this is the one that's central. He wrote to himself, I think, mm -hmm. um, uh, earlier what, during his marriage. And he, he writes to himself, there were two great facts about women which you could only learn by getting married and which flatly contradicted the picture of themselves that women had managed to impose on the world. One was their incorrigible dirtiness and untidiness. The other was their terrible devouring sexuality. He suspected that in every marriage, the struggle was always the same. The man trying to escape from sexual intercourse, to do it only when he felt like it or with other women. The woman demanding it more and more and more mm -hmm. and more consciously despising her husband for his lack of virility. That's an astonishing entry in its own right. It, <laughs> it is. When I'm, so, I'm sorry, I'm laughing. This I, every time I I read that or right. So, but 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 that's astonishing in its own right. But when I talked to Sandra Newman, she said she actually hadn't read the Funder book. She certainly hadn't read the Funder book before she wrote 1984. Mm -hmm. But it's astonishingly pertinent in terms of the reinvention of Julia as this sexually active figure. Mm -hmm. So in this entry, Orwell is describing both himself and of course his his real wife, but also Julia, or certainly the Julia of Sandra Newman. Is that fair? Uh, I think it's very fair. And a couple of things I want to say at why I was laughing so hard. Every time I read that passage, I think, boy, George sounds like a personal problem. I could read that passage with you and use, you know, uh, she instead of he and uh, men instead of women. And it would sound like so many women in the 20th and 21st centuries describing their husbands, you know, I don't know what it was about Eileen herself that led him to say some of these things, or if some of them came from other women that he'd had relationships with. We all know uh, that he certainly had um, sex with prostitutes in more than one place, you know, with sex workers, I should say. Um, and you know, where, where does he come up with this women being so dirty and untidy? Uh, it's just hilarious to read about. And I do think that it might have been something I know that Sandra Newman didn't read Anna Funder's book, but I wonder if she read that passage. Yeah, I, I and, didn't ask her. We sh I should have asked her. Actually. Yeah. But, uh, my sense with her is she hadn't, or she certainly I'm not sure if she'd admit it. She seems rather defiant character. Um, but, it, but it is astonishingly, it's astonishingly uncanny. I mean, uncanny mm -hmm. is by definition, I guess, astonishing. It just, it's, it's, it's too good for fact. It could only happen in this fictional world where here we have a, a rewriting of a novel to reflect the, the life of the original author. Yes, uh, I do. I do wonder. I'd love to see if Newman would answer that someday. But I will say that uh, 
Julia Worthing in 19, in, in, in Julia, not 1984, excuse me, in Newman's book is earthy, is willing to do all kinds of jobs that you might consider dirty or untidy. In fact, at the beginning of Julia, and I'm not going to spoil anything here, she is on her way back to the hostel, the women's hostel where she lives, because she went to work to get a plunger to take care of a very dirty and gruesome job. And so she is not afraid to get her hands dirty. She is not afraid to have sex outside and plein air. She is not afraid to go into the parole quarters of, of London. Um, she is someone who really is filled with life, participates in life, um, is completely aware that Life can be dirty and difficult, and sometimes someone has to clean it up. And let me just mention, Andrew, before I, I finish out this thought, one of the well-known anecdotes that is in one of Eileen's letters, and Anna Funder talks about this in her book, is uh, I guess, I'm not sure if this was on their honeymoon or in their very early days of marriage, the um, young couple of George and Eileen were living in a cottage that didn't have very much in the way yeah. of modern conveniences. And I guess somehow the lavatory overflowed quite badly. And George refused to go anywhere near it. So Eileen had to put on some, you know, wellies and uh, get, you know, materials and clean everything up. Uh, so he saw that as the work women should do in a way. He wasn't going to go near it. And I thought, hmm, that tells you something too. Not everyone, um, Beth Ann, as you know better than I do, agrees with your review of um, right. of, of uh, 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 Sandra Newman's book, uh, The Retelling of 1984. The New York Times review was actually rather scathing. I brought this up with Sandra Newman. Mm -hmm. um, the reviewer argues um, that, uh, that it trivializes 1984. Maybe I'm being a bit unfair. Um, uh, she believes that actually it's more suited for what she argues is the Ministry of Truth. It simplifies it. It dehistoricizes it. It doesn't address Stalinism. What, what did you think mm. of that New York Times review? You know, uh, I will say that uh, you know, I, I love the fact that the New York Times tries to find people to review things who have written um, very similar kinds of, of work. And I don't know. I don't know sometimes if you write very similar kinds of work to what you are critiquing and analyzing, if your own goals sometimes get in the way. I, I, and that is not what I'm saying about Daisy Lafarge. I'm just saying it must be really tough. Um, Daisy to, Lafarge is the uh, is the reviewer. The reviewer, yes. Be a bit um, more specific. Did, has she written something which connects with all this? Uh, she, her, um, I can't remember the name of her first book, but she has written something that has a dystopian flavor. Yes, and so um, it's interesting because reading 1984 by itself 
is an extreme, it's a galvanizing experience for many, many people, which is why Orwellian is a modifier to begin with, right? It's something that really strikes us. It's very shocking. And so I can see why Lafarge says maybe this trivializes the threat of Stalinism um, that was happening while Orwell wrote this. But I don't think that Julia trivializes fascism at all. In fact, I think- Well, it's nothing to do with it. It's Stalinism. Stalinism and fascism. Sorry, different. sorry, Stalinism. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I, I, what I mean to say is the Stalinism that was happening in 1950, okay, um, now is- it, I want to say it's no longer a threat, but my God, it, it had such, you know, reverberations for the entire world. Um, what I want wanted to say, and this is where I got my words mixed up, is that um, fascism plays a huge role. Totalitarianism plays a huge role in Julia. And in telling Julia's backstory, where she lives in this, you know, what the, I'm forgetting, Andrew, what they call the um, outside places in Airstrip One. Um, Newman makes something mm, up. So, I can't remember either. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, we get this backstory about the way people are being treated and about the way they're living um, under Big Brother and with the party. I don't think it's trivialized at all. Um, but you have to read that part of it and you have to engage with it and remember that this is what Julia grew up in and it has shaped her. There is a very, very important thing that goes on between Julia and her mother. And it's why she comes to um, London. It's why she does almost everything she does. And if you Somehow, I, I haven't read the entire New York Times review, so I don't know. It might be that it's not missed at all. But if you if you miss that or if you somehow don't take it into account fully, I think maybe you would believe that um, it's trivialized. But I, I don't feel well, that maybe way. Maybe not so much trivialized as simplified. And let me quote from the yeah, review. Yeah, please. Um, uh, ultimately, a similar dynamic troubles the feminism of Julia, Julia being the book. Um, uh, like the bingo cards produced by the plot machines of fiction, this is in obviously in Orwell's mm -hmm. 1984, the, the novel is coded to produce a desired focus, in this case, women's experience. It's not alone. Contemporary publishing abounds with retelling of classic stories from women's perspectives. But 1984 is a perplexing choice to return to. The novel was written in direct response to Stalin's regime, yet the motives of Julia don't seem to be concerned with the difference, differences between Orwell's period and our own political moment. And perhaps one suggestion there is because, for some people at least, there isn't a difference between Orwell's period and our own. Uh, absolutely. I also think that, you know, let's face it, um, we still ignore so much of women's experience. And there's something that um, Funder says uh, that she, um, I'm not going to get this completely right without looking it up, but she says 
there's nowhere in the world where women have the same privileges, opportunities, resources, power that men do. That hasn't changed or at least hasn't changed enough since um, Orwell's time, regardless of Stalinism. And I think maybe that is what Newman is focusing on. And if that's, you know, if, if, if I fell into the bingo card trap, that's where I am because I do believe that there are a lot of elements of totalitarianism um, in societies right now, but I also see that there's nowhere on earth where women have the same privileges as men. So you think like perhaps Sandra Newman or perhaps like Anna Fonda, I can't speak for either of them, that, right. that the message of 1984 for women today is almost as relevant as it was back then. I, I, I don't know because that wasn't, Orwell's message. Orwell's message wasn't about Julia. Orwell's message was about Stalinism. It's certainly a, a, a debate that will go on. Um, what else should we remember 1984 from? Let's get away from the, the male-female thing. Yeah. What about... 1984 still lives because, uh, for example, that famous uh, advertisement that suggested that 1984, the Apple ad that 1984 won't be like 1984, that computers will liberate us from the Stalinism of, 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 of conventional orthodoxies. Um, 1984 seems to reflect whatever we're particularly concerned with. Uh, I, I think so. I think it does. And I think that's one of the things that gives the original work its power. And one thing I want to make sure that I say during this show is that I do think Sandra Newman's book has outclassed Orwell in its humanity, but it isn't her original idea. It was his original idea. George Orwell was an incredible writer. That's why we call things Orwellian, the way we call things Kafkaesque. Uh, I know, for example, many people think that his best writing is in his essays and in his nonfiction. But I think 1984 holds a great deal of power because it does show us some essential things about human nature, not as fully as Newman does. But what he's trying to say is if you take this idea all the way down, this is what's going to happen. He was a very careful and rigorous thinker. Um, wasn't as careful when he was thinking about his own life and his own emotions, but when it came to ideas and politics and also anything that he saw to be, um, you know, and 1984 is about Stalinism, but he was against fascism in all its forms. And he was also someone, as I mentioned early on, who had his, well, everyone has their own hypocrisies. You know, one, a couple of the things about George Orwell that were hypocritical is, you know, he always looked 
someone said moth-eaten, but he always had very well well tailored moth-eaten clothes on because he didn't want to let down the side of the family that had had money at one point. He had his own conceits. He had his own irrationalities. He was a person. Um, he didn't always see the personhood of everyone around him, but I think he did know a great deal about humanity and how groups of humans um, enter into different kinds of conflict, community, and brainwashing. How can we give up 1984? I mean, double think, double speak. It's amazing. It's 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 really clever. It is really clever, and perhaps the cleverest contribution were his ministries. There are four. And final question, the Ministry of Truth, Peace, Love, and Plenty, um, all profoundly important, powerful ministries within this dystopian world. And, of course, there's no, um, uh, there's Room 101. Uh, I think that was uh, in the Ministry of Love of all places. Which of these ministries um, are most relevant today? Truth, peace, love, or plenty? Oh, my goodness. Uh, because, of course, the thing behind the ministries, Andrew, as you know well, is that they didn't actually have anything to do with their names. Yeah, they're you know, the reverse. So truth, they're, they're, you know, um, neither so, truth, peace, love, nor plenty in 19. Exactly. And so I would say, oh gosh, um, you know, I think we're often most concerned with the ministry of truth and its lies in our, especially in America right now. But when it comes right down to it, the ministry of plenty and its deprivation is what's really affecting the earth and the rest of the world.